0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW
1: Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.
0: in for emergency transport to from to the city to Sinai. Attention all listeners on this frequency. Stand by for an important announcement. Welcome to Medic to Medic podcast weekly podcast for EMS providers, EMS leaders, EMS medical directors, and others involved in or those who have an interest in emergency medical services. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your host, Steve Cohen.
2: Coming from the Care Area EMS Medic to Medic Podcast Studios, it's another episode. You can... Download this podcast, as well as others, at speaker.com, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, of course, and as well as my website at medic You can also reach the host at medic medic medicpodcast at gmail.com. Today, I am joined by Kevin Calipi. Kevin is a critical clinical outcome manager for the New Hanover Regional Medical Center down here on the coast of North Carolina, where he oversees the program's research, education, risk management, and quality assurance. Kevin regularly speaks across the United States and has taught emergency and wilderness medicine on three continents. Uh, Hopefully, we'll get in to see what three continents he uh, taught on and see what those experiences are and were. He's an author of over 150 articles and book chapters including 12 peer-reviewed research abstracts and papers. Kevin, welcome to Medic to Medic podcast.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on with you today. I guess listening to that, I feel a little bit tired. How
2: many years do you have in uh, the career of EMS?
1: I'm in my 19th year right now. Uh, I started in 2000, which makes it a little bit easier to keep track of. If you include year 2000, I guess this is my beginning my 20th year in EMS.
2: Well, how did you decide on an EMS career?
1: Growing up, I kind of knew I wanted to become an EMT at some point. Uh, I was originally going to go on to medical school. I'm sure you've heard that story before. And when I was looking at colleges, I wanted to go to a school where I could volunteer as an EMT while working through my undergraduate. And I ended up selecting Colgate University in upstate New York. And while I was there, I was was a volunteer, uh, and I got my EMT and then my Advanced EMT Critical Care, which is somewhere in between an AEMT and a paramedic today. And had a couple of interesting calls that kind of sucked me into EMS. Uh, Performed CPR on my RA's boyfriend my freshman year in college uh, as my first cardiac arrest. Uh, We had a pretty nasty car accident that same fall uh, where three students were killed on campus. And... The fall after I got into EMS, I found myself at Ground Zero in New York uh, as a part of the recovery process. And that kind of took my career in a different pathway, and I started wanting to do more in pre-hospital care and ended up getting my paramedic while working on my undergraduate. So by the time I graduated, a couple of years later, I had both my paramedic and my as well as my degree and figured I'd work in EMS while so I figured out what else I wanted to do with life. And here we are 20 years later. I'm still trying to figure that
2: out. Well, let's talk about the resuscitation or the possible resuscitation of your RA's uh, boyfriend. Can you go into a little bit of detail on how you got there first, and did he survive?
1: He did not survive, unfortunately. He had Wolf perkinsons White syndrome, and ended up dying from a from an arrhythmia. So it was. I was actually in my dorm room, which was across campus, and we got dispatched to a flooding accident, and. While walking over there, uh, found him at the top of the flooding hill, not at the bottom of the sledding hill, and uh, with a campus police officer kind of staring at him, trying to figure out what to do, and he was in cardiac arrest. And no one had quite figured that out yet. Like I said, he had Wolf Perkinson's white, was walking back up the flooding hill, which is only about 20, 25 feet long, so a fairly small hill, And I guess, in, in contact. We ended up doing 95 minutes of CPR, trying to resuscitate him. Unfortunately, he went from V fib to A-systole fairly quickly, but given his age at 20 years old, no one really wanted to give up until they had figured out what was going on.
2: You said you were in the recovery process at Ground Zero. Walk us through that process, and how did you end up at Ground Zero?
1: So I will never forget the day, you know, 9-11 Ground Zero. I was in bed still uh, in my dorm room when the first tower was struck, and when the first tower was struck, struck sometime shortly thereafter, one of the other EMTs I was volunteering with, and who's now an uh, intensivist in a hospital in Michigan, uh, as well as, I believe he's cross-trained in emergency medicine as well, he called me on the phone, and the guy never swears, and he said, get out of bed and turn on the fucking TV. I hope I can say that on your podcast.
2: It's okay. Uh,
1: so really, <laughs> drew my attention to it very quickly, uh, that something big was going on, and I got to the TV in time to watch the second tower get struck, and uh, that was beginning in the fall. We watched both towers fall, and very quickly we were about three hours from New York, uh, from the city itself. And all the ambulance services were put on notice: uh, do not just go to the city. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what is going on and what we're going to need to do in the hours, in the hours, and a couple days thereafter. And our ambulance service was requested to go to Ground Zero for uh, a 48-hour period to help with the recovery efforts, Well, it was still considered a rescue operation uh, six days after the towers were struck. So I was part of a team of five people from our ambulance service that went down there and spent the day staged uh, just outside, and then we spent the entire night uh, at the pile at Ground Zero. Uh, and I actually just went back to the site, to the memorial site, to where the reflecting pools are now for the first time with my wife uh that's just in January and it was a little it was all fine it was a little surreal but what really struck me the most was when we were walking down one of the side streets and I realized I was looking at a brick building and the last time I had looked at that brick building someone had written morgue in spray paint with an arrow on it and directing it to one of the coolers in one of the restaurants uh, and that's where they were taking all the bodies of the non-service officers at the time so Police officers, firemen, as they were recovering them, uh, port authority officers—they were taking them directly to another site uh, away from the from the debris pile. Uh, but any private citizens that they were finding, they had an on-site morgue that they were taking them to. That was quite literally the refrigerator from a former restaurant. Uh, but that the wording has been power washed off, so you can't see it anymore. But it's the yellow bricks that are still there. Uh, you know, eighteen years later, that struck me a little bit on how little can. How little can change in some of the momentums momentos can still be there that remind you of events, even though the actual center of it's gone now.
2: Can you take our listeners through your thought process as you're driving to ground zero and how about the first things you saw through your eyes?
1: when you're going down there, you're hoping to help I think everyone wanted to be the person that was there when someone was pulled alive out of the pile. Um, we were all for lack of a better word, excited to get down there to try and help and be a part of it. Uh, didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into at the time. When I got there, we spent most of the day staging. Uh, they had everyone staged by Chelsea Pier, which is about a mile and a half, two miles away from the actual uh, uh, terrorist attack site itself uh, from where uh, the World Trade Center was. and uh, We got sent down there at about 10:30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, my crew was sent down there. And what I remember most was, and how it kind of hit real, was we started going through military checkpoints. And at every single military checkpoint, you had 18- and 19-year-old boys with M-16s pointing it at every vehicle as they were searching them to make sure it wasn't another terrorist attack.
0: Uh, they wanted
1: to screen every ambulance coming through, every vehicle coming through, to make sure that it was safe to proceed closer and closer to ground zero, uh, and then when we got around there, it literally was like walking into a bomb zone. Uh, we were—I I, I touched the pile. I was that close that I was actually able to touch debris. I was able to stand next to some of the fire engines that were right outside of the debris field of where the towers fell. That were crushed in the debris, and uh, I was standing right next to them. Uh, and the only thought that goes through your head at the time is, "This is what it, is what it's like to be in war, um, not with the." guns going off and missiles and bombs around you, but what it's like after someone has left the battlefield and a city is left in ruins, and that's literally what it looks like.
2: And how long were you down there?
1: We, spent, we only spent 48 hours there. Uh, the city and the state worked out a plan because everyone, out of a kind of a sense of patriotism, every ambulance service with multiple ambulances wanted to be able to help and contribute, so they rotated every ambulance service in the state through and because we were a small ambulance service with only two ambulances at the time, we, we were given a 48-hour block of time, and that's what our service was given. Other services were there a little bit longer based on how many personnel and ambulances they had that they could spare. But as volunteers, that's all they felt uh, our service could afford to have away from our primary service area.
2: What was it like for you when you returned home to your volunteer ambulance service?
1: Well, when we got back home, it was Straight back to business as usual, we had an elderly lady that night once we got back for the service to go take care of who was experiencing chest pain, and I don't really remember any other details about it, but it was just kind of like, welcome back home. You know, our, our 911 center, when we checked back in service, Jan said, welcome back, thank you, and paid us out a couple hours later. As a student, going back onto campus, no one really knew any different. So it was Parents Weekend that weekend, and instead of having my parents come up for Parents Weekend, uh, well, everyone else's parents were there, I was gone, and when I came back, you know, everyone else, their world experience was hanging out with their families for the weekend. There was no real way to correlate. Uh, myself and uh, one other student who had went as well to Ground Zero with me, we really had no way to really explain to anyone else what it was that we saw. Uh, there were probably a dozen or so kids on campus who had a family member or a neighbor or someone they knew killed in the towers. Uh, That was probably the closest we had to anyone really being able to say, yeah, we get what you've seen. Uh, Many of the people with whom I were going to school were uh, fairly sheltered in that kind of perspective, which is probably a good thing.
2: All right. So you finished school, and are you originally from North Carolina?
1: No, I'm originally from Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's why it sounds like I have no accent at all, is because I've got a Midwestern drawl that I get told from time to time. Uh, so, after, after gra- uh, graduating, I went back to Wisconsin, and I started working full-time as a paramedic in the Milwaukee area for a private service, and originally, I was going to go back to school during that time, uh, and at about the same time, I started working for Wilderness Medical Associates. So, I, I started with them in the fall of 2005 and had graduated college in, in the spring of 2005, and uh, so I started teaching in my off time and working as a paramedic on the streets the rest of the time and within a couple years I was promoted to a paramedic field training officer and then I was sent to critical care school Uh, and during that time like I said I was doing a lot of teaching for WMA both in the United States and uh, eventually around the world and uh, three years after I started there uh, I was through my critical care paramedic training and decided to apply for a flight paramedic position in central Wisconsin. And I went up to work for ministry healthcare for Spirit Medical Transport, uh, where I worked for three and a half years as a critical care and flight paramedic. Uh, and then I moved out here to North Carolina uh, for what became my current job uh, after a couple of iterations. But, so I spent six years in Wisconsin. Uh, that's when I really started getting into writing. I got into doing a lot of teaching on the side and really getting into the education side of pre-hospital care. And a lot of that was really driven by my background uh, for my undergraduate when I was getting really frustrated with some of the training materials that were available for paramedics. And I'm sure as many of your listeners can relate, uh, I found the training topics, the content, the presentations we were getting as simply awful. Uh, we were having people lecture that had no idea how to understand what paramedics did, how they worked, what training they had. Uh, it was all... Here's what you need to know how to be a paramedic from a physician or from a nurse who really had no perspective of your background and what pre-hospital care could and should do. And it was what everyone else's opinion was of us instead of what we thought we could evolve into ourselves. That really drove me into the education side while I was trying to gain some street experience uh, at the same time.
2: I want to get back to the clinical practice in a couple minutes, but what three continents did you uh, teach on and what was your interest in in wilderness EMS?
1: So I have a second career and I spent uh, all my years through high school, uh, through college, and for several summers afterwards uh, guiding wilderness camping trips. Uh, I've spent about 600 nights in tents over the years and have been as far north uh, as the Northwest Territories and Nunavut in northern Canada. I've uh, spent over uh, two one month long trips in northern Saskatchewan canoeing. I've been on top of ten thousand foot mountains on mountaineering trips, and so I've really had a strong passion for the outdoors as well. And so, while I got my EMT, my paramedic, I was also a wilderness first responder uh, through college as well, and so I knew of the organization and had been using their education throughout uh, my guiding experiences, uh, and it really made sense just with some of the connections I had made that as a paramedic with a lot of camping experience that I applied to try and work for them and, and really start working on my teaching experience uh, at the same time. And that's, that's what really drove me into the wilderness medicine aspect of my career uh, was simply that I was doing it on a regular basis. Fortunately, I didn't have to practice a lot of medicine. When I was on my camping trips, I I like to think I was able to keep people reasonably safe. And outside of a few blisters and uh, some cuts we had to keep clean and some infections, no one really got seriously sick or hurt on any of my trips. Uh, But that led me into wilderness medicine, uh, which led me to teach for WMA, which allowed me to teach throughout most of the United States. I think I've taught in 25 different states. And I uh, went and taught in Taiwan, and I've also taught in Belize. So those are kind of the three different continents, South America, North America, and then Asia I've been into as well. Asia was probably the most interesting in Taiwan. Uh, we had to take a 72-hour class and teach it over an 11-day period because I had to have everything I was teaching translated. So instead of just being able to give a lecture and speak fluently and talk about something, you had to give two or three ideas and then let them translate it uh, into, into for, the, for the local persons taking the class.
2: So tell us a little bit about what you do at New Hanover as a clinical, man, uh, clinical outcomes manager. Uh, I just had uh, Dr. Brent Myers and Dr. Remley Crow uh, from ESO on the podcast. Actually, they're airing right now. They look at metrics and they produce uh, an article each year at ems1.com talking about those five uh, metrics and how they've improved or declined or stayed the same. Is this something that you do for New Hanover?
1: So some very that's a piece of what I do in, in a very similar manner. Uh, so really have four different arms that fall under clinical outcomes. Uh, all of our protocol development and looking at what the best practices are for providing patient care, that's one piece of what we do. Looking at quality metrics for uh, all the different patients we provide care for and making sure that the protocols are not, act, not just adhered to, but they actually impact patient outcomes. So my team looks at about 65 different quality metrics every month, I'm sorry, a little more than that, it's more like 95 quality metrics every month that we look at across our system. Uh, We also participate and I oversee several research trials and then I'm overseeing my team's education as well. So I have an educator who works directly with me on my team. I have a clinical coordinator who really compiles most of the data uh, and then I work directly with the medical director on the protocol development, and uh, all of the risk management falls underneath us as well as kind of a piece of quality metrics. Uh, so we look at we look at care bundles. So one of the bundles we look at is we look at all of our severe sepsis and septic shock patients every month. Uh, we look to see that they got all aspects of the uh, Society of Critical Care Medicines and Surviving Sepsis Campaigns, uh, three- and six-hour treatment bundles, so my team can run lactate. We make sure we get lactates on all of our patients. We give both antibiotics. We give the appropriate amounts of fluid, and that we're, if we need vasoactive drugs, that we're using Levoped. And then we look at mortality in our patients. So, on average, if you look across the country, severe sepsis, septic shock mortality uh, ranges anywhere between about 45 to 60 percent in in the average system across the country. Currently, year to date, my team's severe sepsis mortality is 16.5 percent. So I cannot, and I not, I not only say yes, we got an IV, yes, we gave the drug, yes, we gave fluid, but we actually are able to look back and see how that ties into patient outcomes. So we can look at did we impact someone's life and did we impact the healthcare system and return someone back to society, because ultimately that's what we're here for. Um, we're not here to check boxes and say, yes, we moved someone from point A to point B. We're here to say we made their lives a little bit better. Well,
2: it sounds like you have a pretty good handle on the EMS world and New Hanover as well as throughout the United States. What is lacking in the clinical practice in EMS today? Oh, that's a very loaded question. I know it so is. <laughs> the,
1: the, the biggest thing that's lacking in our clinical practice today is the lack of self-governance. Right now, across the United States, even though every, nearly every state has an EMS branch, an EMS division, a department of EMS under the Department of Health, whatever you want to call it, uh, there are in most states still physicians and nurses that are defining the EMS practice instead of paramedics defining the EMS practice. I, I believe there is always going to be a place for. Uh, a a physician relationship, a physician partner, uh, a physician oversight to some degree, but paramedics really need to be self-governing and defining what it is paramedics should be doing, uh, leading paramedic research to make sure that what we think we should be doing actually impacts our patients, uh, and then using that to change how we provide care to those that we serve in every city across the country. To do that, to get to that end state, where we have an independent paramedic board, whether it's state by state or whether it's national, uh, both are lofty goals. Before we can even get to that point, we have got to improve the education standards for paramedics across the the country. Um, I am a continuing education paramedic. I got my paramedic in night school while I was working on my undergraduate. I was not an associate's degree in paramedicine originally. I teach a continuing education program for paramedics at the community college. Uh, it's partnered right with our degree program so that my my providers can go right in and finish their degree if they don't already have one. Uh, I'm very fortunate that most of the guys who take and girls who take my paramedic class already have degrees when they come into it. Um, that's just probably a function of luck more than anything. Um, but I, I really firmly believe that if we are going to be able to be self-governing, expand our scope of practice and really meet the patient needs in every community um, and being able to deliver the care that we want to, we have to be more fluid as a system. To be more fluid as a system, we have to be managing ourselves. To be managing ourselves, we have to have paramedic leaders who have bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, PhDs in the field. Um, It's awesome that you mentioned Remel, who is an EMP with a doctorate. So, you know, there is a great future leader for our country for paramedics of uh, someone who knows our field, that grew up in EMS, has worked in EMS, but can also lead the research on EMS providers to help drive what paramedic practice should be. Uh, we need more people like her across the country. Uh, and until we require that education to be there, we aren't going to tip the iceberg toward moving that profession forward. As long as we get, get hung up on, well, what if that impacts our staffing? What if that impacts our pay? What if, what if that impacts our availability? Until we could get over that hurdle, we're never going to reach that tipping point where we're really able to move everyone forward. Uh, I know that is a really hot debate. For full transparency, I am on the emeritus board for the International Association of Flight and Critical Care Paramedics. I'm a past president of them, and I fully supported the position paper when it was drafted with, with the National Association of EMS Educators and the EMS... Uh, management Association and when they put out the position paper last year that said it's time for degrees so I am biased in my opinion that I'm from an association that fully supports that thought and I know uh, that it's very controversial and I know that the biggest providers against it are our brothers and sisters in the fire service. Uh, my biggest counter argument to that cause I know people are going to bring it up that says well all the fire associations say, We shouldn't have degrees for paramedics. Uh, My challenge to that is most of those services are supporting the fire service where paramedicine is a branch of the fire service, and that is one paradigm of pre-hospital care and of paramedicine and of EMS, and if we stick to that paradigm where we are attached to someone else, then we'll truly never be self-governing, so it's that whole evolution that has to change uh, and paramedicine and EMS grew out of the fire service because we needed a home. And perhaps, just perhaps, I'm not saying this needs to happen, so please don't let people send me hate mail right afterwards. But perhaps it's time that across the country we're going to have to separate those two bodies and let pre-hospital care, pre-hospital medicine, be its own profession instead of a division or a branch of other specialties in public service and in healthcare. care. I warned you, that was a loaded question. You, you went for it, so I, I'm going to answer with the excitement and passion that I have.
2: And it's very much appreciated. This topic has been debated numerous times on this podcast by numerous guests, and it'll continue to go on. We always talk about what, sometimes we talk about what's lacking, but what is EMS doing well?
1: EMS is doing many things well. We are evolving, which is incredible to see. If you talk to someone 20 years ago in EMS, they never would have talked about activating STEMIs, activating stroke teams, uh, being able to give fibrinolytic and anti-fibrinolytic in the field, carrying drugs we never thought we would have before, performing ultrasound, being out-of-hospital clinicians as community paramedics or mobile integrated health. We're evolving to meet our community's needs, and, and that is a true sign of a maturing piece of the part of the healthcare system. Uh we are provi- putting out some really good research. Finally, uh, when I got into EMS, all of our medicine was really based on emergency department care and hospital-based care that we thought made sense to provide in the field. We are now seeing paramedic, paramedic research across the country every year, and publishing papers that says and show what we should do, what we should be starting to do, and what we really should stop doing. Because it doesn't make an impact in patient care. Look at some of the research that's out now. We know lights and sirens doesn't make a difference 90% of the time, but we know it increases our risk. So many EMS systems can now start stopping the clock. We don't have to time eight minutes to get to a house for someone with the flu. We know we can go driving regular traffic with the flow of the traffic in the community, following all traffic rules, and we're going to get there much safer, and we're going to be able to manage that patient just as safely and effectively. We know that it may, you know, we will worsen outcomes if we drive every cardiac arrest to an emergency department. We are better off using a pick crew approach to CPR, resuscitating that patient on scene and either terminating in the field or transporting them after we achieve ROS when we're able to stabilize their hemodynamics. Now, we, we know now in many areas how we can provide good, effective care, but that really has led to a lot more questions of what we don't know which is why it's great to see so much research get published. I love going to EMS World Expo every year and seeing 50 poster abstracts on pre-hospital research and then seeing those papers come out over the next year in PEC and AMJA and all the other journals that are out there and seeing what people are learning so that we can adapt it to our practice. Uh, I think we are doing a great job starting to advocate for ourselves. It's rarely a week that doesn't go by now that you see in the newspapers or in the news, or on the TV somewhere, paramedics talking about the problems our profession faces and what we need to do to change it. We are finding our own solutions, uh, and I think that's really wonderful to see. I'm really excited to see where pre-hospital care is going to go in the next 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, and what new ideas get innovated out there for our profession.
2: What articles that you've written stand out?
1: Oh, goodness. Uh, there's a few. I think my favorite article that I ever ever wrote uh, was an article called Busting the Top Trauma Myth. I wrote that with Scott Snyder, who is a paramedic instructor at Santa Rosa Community College out in Santa Rosa, and uh, Sean Kivlian, who is an emergency medicine physician at Bringland Women's Hospital in Boston. He's on faculty at Harvard now. Uh, he was doing his emergency medicine residency in uh, uh, at UCSF out in San Francisco at the time. Uh, the three of us wrote about seventy articles for EMS World Magazine uh, over a six-year period. Uh, we've since retired from that project. It was a lot of fun, but we've moved on. Uh, but that article, uh, in the six months after it was published, uh, was read, shared, downloaded over one hundred and fifty thousand times, um, and it was just awesome to see we were having that kind of impact on free hospital providers uh, across the United States and around the world. Um, Sean actually. Uh, is a gentleman who started with his associate's degree in paramedicine and is now uh, a physician, like I said, and on the faculty at Harvard. So it's pretty awesome to see where paramedics can go. I just have to, I can't not give him a plug for all the work he's done, um, both uh, for EMS here in the United States and around the world, uh, working with the WHO. Um, A couple of the other articles that were a lot of fun, right, that I think were really impactful, wrote an article on Uh, called What's the Point Uh, on Pre-Hospital Point-of-Care Lab Testing uh, On how we can introduce pre-hospital lab testing into the field. Uh, My EMS system, my critical care transport team, was actually the first ambulance service in the country accredited by the College of American Pathologists as an accredited point-of-care lab, which is the same accreditation all hospital laboratories uh, have in the United States. Those are probably the two uh, magazine articles uh, or, or, or articles that stand out the most, uh, and then I've had a lot of fun re- really writing uh, pre-hospital research and uh, turning some of the abstracts we've written into full papers, and, and actually just not just writing, um, you know, opinion pieces based on research and researching things and writing a continuing education article, but also doing the research so that hopefully people can reference uh, the actual research we're starting to do in the future as well, um, and then. I've written several different chapters for a variety of the paramedic textbooks that are out there now. Uh, it's always kind of fun to sit in paramedic class, uh, and when you're giving a lecture, and they look at it and go, you know, this 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 chapter sounds a lot like what you're telling us in class. And you can kind of smirk at it and go, well, oh, because I was the contributor of that artic- of that chapter. It's kind of fun to be able to say every once in a while.
2: Has there an article that has caused you uh, any regret?
1: no. I wouldn't say I've ever regretted publishing something. Uh, There are always times I wish I had done more due diligence in finding the right references and making sure things were cited correctly. Uh, But we've made a lot of uh, effort, myself and my colleagues with whom I've written, to really make sure that the information we put out has been the most accurate it can be at the time of publication. I use the phrase a lot when I teach in my in any of the classes I teach, whether it's in a paramedic class or a continuing education lecture, that I, I ask the question in the class, is anyone here in any EMS because they want to do a bad job? And of course, no one raises their hand. So, you know, the same thing is true about every instructor you have ever had in every class. No one stands up in front of you and says, I want to teach bad information or wrong information. All we can teach is the... That's information we have available at the time. We're not doing a bad job. We can always do better. We can always look for ways to learn things uh, deeper, to understand them better, to be able to present them in a more effective manner so that more people can understand it. And and then I caveat that with medicine is always changing and evolving. There's no way to stay current in medicine. You could sit at a desk all day and do nothing but read research papers And there's still going to be more published than you can possibly keep up with if you look around the world. And there's always going to be the opportunity that someone has new information that might change our practice. So if I'm teaching something today or someone else teaches something new tomorrow that's different from what you've heard before, ask us about it and ask us to provide the evidence that we're using to present that information. Um, I might be wrong when I'm lecturing it. Someone else might be more right. Or perhaps what we're teaching now, it's not that someone was wrong in the past. It's that the, the medicine and the science has changed over time, and so I am sure if someone looks back since I've been publishing since two thousand four, uh, you can find an article that's out there where the medicine has changed since that has come out. But at the time, that was I used the best information we had available to put an article that's out there, uh, and and I'll never regret sharing that information. Uh, I have had instances where I didn't cite something clearly enough, and someone called into question. Hey, you know that that graph looks really familiar to something we published over here. Um, maybe we saw it in passing, and we didn't recognize it. And we've always gone back when those questions have come up to add those references into that into those sources uh, into the articles out there for our, for those readers, so that they can see those references themselves. We always try to add and contribute to the knowledge that's available.
2: Kevin, thank you for your insight. I appreciate you taking the time and effort and entertaining us uh, on my podcast. So thank you for joining
1: me. Absolutely. It's been
0: a pleasure. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.